compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. When we last left off, we had just completed Mark chapter 12. Remember what had gone on in Mark chapter 11 was the triumphal entry. Jesus has gone into Jerusalem for what is the final week of his life. He's going to be crucified on a Friday. He's going to rise on Sunday. And here we are in Mark chapter 11 and 12. We're in the beginning of the week. And what's happening is the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is that's gone on for three years is finally coming to a head. And they're going at sort of loggerheads with one another. And remember, Jesus seems to win every battle. Well, that's because he's Jesus, so he always does. Uh, but one of the things happens in that time period is we saw that Jesus had the parable of the cursing of the fig tree because it was all leaves and no fruit. It would look good, but it wasn't productive. It's the only cursing parable in the Gospels. And we learned back then that that was a parable of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple because the temple looked really good but it was completely unfruitful, completely unspiritual. And it was all show. And even the religious leadership was completely corrupt in the temple. The level of corruption in the religious leadership will become increasingly apparent as we get to Mark 14 all the way to the end of the chapter because they will lie, they will cheat, they will deceive, they will scheme to murder Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. So this morning, we actually pick up in Mark chapter 13. And in Mark chapter 13, Jesus moves from having pronounced the, the curse on the temple and Jerusalem to actually prophetically speaking about how that curse will be fulfilled and how it will take place. Um, so what he's going to do is he's going to prophetically talk about how um, this curse is going to be carried out. But what gets interesting is we'll find is Jesus doesn't just talk in this chapter about the destruction of Jerusalem. He actually moves beyond that and he talks about his return and the ultimate end of the world. This, as I said earlier, is the hardest chapter by far in the Gospel of Mark. It is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible itself. The big tension that goes on in this chapter is when is Jesus speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which will take place in 70 AD, 40 years after this, and when is he speaking about things that will take place at the end of the world? Now, you need to know that great Bible scholars that many of us really love disagree very strongly on issues in this chapter about what has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and what has to do with the end of the world. I have spent a lot of time studying this chapter, trying to come to my own understanding of it, my own convictions, and I'm obviously going to share those with you this morning. That's my job. And I realize, though, that among us, all of you probably won't agree with me. And some of you may have grown up with this chapter being taught a, a little differently. And I understand that. All I would ask is that you extend some charity and that we think about this together. Remember, this is the, one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to understand. 
And uh, the way Christians handle these things is different. Because when we disagree with these kind of things in the Bible, we let that force us to go back to Scripture and study more. And we draw together towards truth. The world handles it differently. When they disagree about something, they fight, they bicker, and they get violent with one another. That is not what we will do. We will allow our disagreements and things that we're learning on to move us towards maturity and truth. The, uh, this entire chapter, which is a lot of stuff to cover, I'm going to cover in only two weeks. But uh, I'm only going to cover the first 23 verses this morning, which, by the way, is still a lot to cover. But because this chapter functions as an entire unit, we need to begin by reading the entire chapter, even though we're only going to cover the first 23 verses. So I'd like to ask you to have your copy of God's Word out. Please stand out of reverence for the Word of God. And follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read Mark chapter 13. I can turn to it. Sticky fingers this morning. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, or look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house nor to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Anybody confused? That's what I thought. Exactly. So let's start to dive in. Um, Jesus were in, excuse me, Jesus' um, disciples have asked Jesus, when will the city of Jerusalem be destroyed? And what Jesus does is he answers that question in this chapter. But as I said, he goes beyond that answer, and then he begins to talk about not just Jerusalem's destruction, but his return and sort of the end of the world's destruction. And uh, here's where it gets interesting. What parts are talking about Jerusalem and what part is talking about the end of the world, as I said. And I told you scholars disagree violently on this translation. To give you an example, R.C. Sproul, you ever heard of him? He says all of this took place before 70 A.D. John MacArthur, you ever heard of him? He's in the news all the time right now. He says just a little bit of this deals with the destruction of Jerusalem at the beginning. Then a whole bunch of it in the middle deals with the, the tribulation and the last seven years of history. And he sort of retrojects everything at the return of the world at the end. Then you have other scholars who think this operates like a light switch. One verse is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he flips the switch, and the next verse is talking about the end of the world, then another verse is Jerusalem, and it goes back and forth like that. Very confusing. Now you're going to say, how do I think this works? I'm just going to tell you up front. This is the outline and structure I'm going to follow, and I actually think it's the best one of all the ones I've examined. 
verses 5 through 23 at the beginning all focus on Jesus answering the question the disciples asked, which was, when will be the destruction of Jerusalem, and what will be the sign that will happen? Then, in verses 24 through 27, he moves on to the end of the world in answering that. Then you notice at the end, he comes back, and there are two parables he gives. First, a parable of the fig tree, which has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, which he says, by the way, will take place within this generation, which actually does, because it happens within 40 years. And then he gives the parable of the owner, which he says, you don't know when the owner will re return, which has to do with the end of the world, because no one knows when Christ will return. So I put together a little slide. Thank you, Jeremy, you already have it up. I didn't even realize that, to show you uh, how this works. Destruction of Jerusalem, end of the world, parable about the destruction of Jerusalem, and it'll take place in the near future, parable about the end of the world, and no one knows when that will transpire. Now, by the way, that's not an uh, outline that's unique to me. I think the best scholars I've been able to find on the Gospel of Mark all hold this same outline. So I'm giving you the best I've got. Let's jump in the text. We've got a lot of things to cover, but this is going to be exciting stuff. And I think I'm going to be able to answer some questions that people have probably had for most of their life returning to this passage. It begins with this, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And he came out of the temple, and one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, at what wonderful stones and what beautiful buildings. We need to remember that Herod's temple, which we've talked about many times, is just an amazing building. There is no temple in the world at this time that is larger than it. It is the most beautiful structure that exists on the earth. Let me just show you that little picture up there of it. I was trying to give you some kind of... Go ahead and go back to it. Thank you. This is a model of it. This guy named Alec Gerard. he spent his retirement years building a model of what the Herod's Temple looked like to scale so we would be able to get an idea of it. I've heard that it took him 30 years of his retirement to build this. But I want to point out to you is look at the size of the people. Is that giving you an idea how big this building is? It is monstrously huge. It covers 35 acres in size. That is over 30 football fields in square area. To walk around the building itself, it's over one mile in circumference. This building is all stone. Some of the stones in the foundation are 67 feet long. They weigh well over one million pounds. And trust me, Dean Madigan does not have a piece of earth-moving equipment big enough to move those things. The amazing part is they did this all without hydraulics. I mean, think about this. They built this by hand. Uh, when you look at the outside, you saw there's this uh, covered area, this portico that has pillars on it. Go ahead and show me that next slide, Jeremy. Uh, you can see the pillars there, and this is a, another rendition of the model. I can show you what it was like. There are 162 pillars holding this, that outside roof up. 
Each pillar is so large that three men touching their hands end-to-end could not wrap around each one of those. Gives you an idea of the scale and size. The temple itself, which you can't often realize, actually rises out of the ground like a mountain in the center of the city. The temple rises 150 feet above ground level at that point. It looks like a mountain. Josephus writes about the the temple, saying there is so much gold plate on the outside of the temple that when travelers were coming to the temple from a distance, they could not look at it in the sun because so much sun was reflected by the gold that came off it, they were blinded. And when they could look at the temple from a distance because the sun wasn't able to shining on it. He described it as a snow-covered mountain because everything in the center of it was built with solid white marble. That is what it looks like. The walls on the outside of the temple are high, huge. The wall that's the largest coming out of the Kidron Valley is 210 feet high. That's as high as a 15-story building. We don't even have anything like that around Spirit Lake. It took them over 80 years, an entire lifetime, to build this building. And when it was built, by the way, no hammers were allowed to be heard. No saws were allowed to be heard. It was built in complete and total silence. Do you think Herod was proud of his temple? Do you think the Jews were exceedingly proud of their temple? Oh, yeah. It was a national treasure, the complete pride of Judaism. But what does Jesus think about this temple that's filled with empty worship and corrupt leaders? He continues, and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is not impressed at all. And when Jesus says that this whole place will be destroyed, it's roughly the equivalent of somebody saying to you that they plan to nuke the White House. It is extremely offensive, extremely hard for even the disciples to hear. By the way, the destruction of of the temple, this is not something that's new. It's a sign of impending judgment. You go to the Old Testament. Did Jesus ever, dis- or excuse me, did God ever destroy the temple in the past? Well, you know, hold on. I'm going to disagree with you. Solomon's temple, because of the corrupt leadership at the time, God sent the Babylonians, right, to take his own people into captivity as judgment for their sin. So God has destroyed his own temple because his people have fallen away from him into sin in the past. What what are they doing right now? They are rejecting the greatest prophet of all, Jesus Christ. So what will happen? God's judgment will fall. And we're going to see it falls in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by the Romans. This is what Jesus is prophetically talking about this morning. God destroys his city and his temple as judgment for his people's sin. By the way, the first problem we run into is right here. 
Jesus has said there will not be left one stone upon another in these massive buildings. If you go to Jerusalem today, you will still find this. Go ahead and show us. This is the Wailing Wall. You ever heard that? This is the outer wall of the temple. There are still some stones left upon another on the outer wall. And people say, look, Jesus is wrong. Read the text a little closer. There will be not one stone left upon another of these amazing buildings. All of the buildings are destroyed, not one stone left on another. This was the outer wall of the complex, not a building in the complex. So I just want to point that out to you. I don't believe Jesus was wrong at all. Then it continues. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The Mount of Olives, by the way, is 300 feet above Jerusalem itself. Uh, Jesus has left the temple complex, gone down into the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives goes up. It's 300 feet higher. Go ahead and show us that slide. That's a picture from the Mount of Olives looking down in the modern day to give you an idea. This is a typical place where many travelers leaving the city would actually stop and catch their breath because of the steep climb. So Jesus is now looking down on the temple, literally 150 feet above the temple, 300 feet above Jerusalem itself. And the disciples tell us when will it happen that the temple will be destroyed and what will be the sign that this is about to happen. And this is what Jesus is about to answer. But here's where it gets really interesting. Remember that this Olivet Discourse is not just covered in the Gospel of Mark. It's also talked about in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. When you read the parallel accounts, there's information included that Jesus also said but was not directly written down by Mark in his book. Look what we find Jesus was all, excuse me, what we find was also said at this time when Matthew records it. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now this explains why Jesus in this chapter doesn't just talk about when the destruction of the Jerusalem will be, but why he continues on and talks about what will be the signs of the end of the age. Because they actually asked two questions. Matthew tells us that. This morning, we are just going to be focusing on answering the first in verses 5 through 23. And that's where we find ourselves. Interestingly, what Jesus begins by doing is talking about false signs of the end, not true signs of the end. Things that will, many, will lead many people to think that God's judgment is about to fall, but that's not actually going to take place. These are false signs. What were the false signs of Jerusalem's destruction? Number one, there will be false messiahs around who will speak lies. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name 
saying, I am he, and he will, and they will lead many astray. Be prepared for false messiahs. There's going to be a lot of them. Incidentally, at the end of this section, he goes back and says the same thing. Be careful of false messiahs. Whenever Jesus says something twice, what does that mean? You better notice it. He's underlining that. What he is saying is the most destructive force that Satan has to destroy the church is going to be false teachers. It's not persecution, guys. It is false messiahs and false teachers. Now, at this point, he is answering the question about Jerusalem. And what we often say, well, then, okay, between the year 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., were there a bunch of false teachers out there? Oh, yes. As soon as you look in the historical record, they begin to jump out. You can even find some of them in the Scriptures themselves. Acts chapter 5 talks about a man named Thutis. He lived from the years 44 to 47. He claimed that he could split the Jordan River. He was a false messiah. Guess what happened? The Romans went after him, and his followers killed him, and his father was scattered. Obviously, it didn't work too well. You can't defend yourself against the Romans. Acts 21 talks about an Egyptian who also claimed to be a prophet, led 4,000 people into the wilderness. The Romans got out, and his claim was that he could stand in front of Jerusalem and with his word knock down the walls of the city. Uh, when he went to go do that, the Romans attacked him. Everybody scattered. He actually got away with his life, never to be heard from again, but obviously he was another false messiah. Between the years 66 and 70 A.D., right prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, there were numerous people in Jerusalem who claimed to be the Messiah. Every single one of them is false. And by the way, not much has changed, has it? Plenty of false messiahs today. Not just in that day. The next thing he says about what will be false signs of the destruction will be this. He says, get ready because there will be human disasters such as wars. He says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end, he says, is not yet. Put yourself back in the year 30 to 70 AD, and you find there was constant conflict between the Parthenians and the Romans. There was turmoil and skirmishes all around Israel. You constantly heard of wars in that area, and what Jesus says is, by the way, that's not a sign that the destruction of Jerusalem is about ready to take place. A lot of people are upset about it, but it's not the end. It's a normal part of living in a fallen and sinful world to have wars taking place. Now, I've heard people, many well-meaning, wonderful people say to me, Hey, Pastor, Jesus is going to return anytime now. I'm sure of it because you see what's happening in the Middle East and all the wars and conflicts that are going on. And my answer is this, guys. Uh, maybe, but uh, maybe not. Because Jesus says wars and conflicts are actually false signs of his return. And you put your, mind, you put your finger in history, you find in 342 years of recorded history, there are only 246, I believe, that do not have war taking place in them. In other words, war is a normal part of living in a fallen world. The next thing he moves on to is this. There will be natural disasters, such as earthquakes. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but, these are but the beginning, he says, of the birth pains. Between the year 30 and 70 A.D., you find there was a number of earthquakes that hit the ancient world. The city of Laodicea was destroyed and, and brought to rubble by an earthquake. The city of Philippi, the, the, the letter of Philippians that we just finished studying, it was also destroyed and decimated by an earthquake, brought down to rubble. The city of Corinth was destroyed by an earthquake and brought to rubble. The city of Cyprus was destroyed and brought down to a rubble. Right after that, you have Mount Vesuvius erupt and cover Pompeii in lava and ash. Now, if you're living in the ancient world and your cities are constantly being shaken and destroyed to rubble, what is the thing you would naturally think? I think God is angry. I think his judgment is going to fall. And Jesus says it's a normal part of living in a fallen, sinful world where the curse is on creation. It's a false sign of his return. These are, but he says, the beginning of birth pains. Ladies, we call that false labor, right? You're not in labor. It's just warming up. Now, the problem is that people love to do all kinds of books out there predicting the end. Put that one slide up there, Jeremy. You guys ever seen these kind of things? Hey, based on what's happened with earthquakes and based on what's happening in the Middle East and the wars that are going on out there, we've all figured it out. We've put a chart together and we know exactly when Christ is going to return. And you know what Jesus says to that? Exactly, Steve. No, you don't. All these things are just false signs. Don't be distracted by them. Now he continues on in verses 9 and 13. And he's talking about what life will be like for Christians during this time. And by the way, it's not going to be fun. Expect to be persecuted and taken to court, he says. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. He said, expect that you will be persecuted. Expect the Jews will persecute you, but not just the Jews. Notice who he says, governors and kings and councils, that you'll be brought before secular society for faith in my name. That's just a normal thing to be expected. Didn't, isn't that what happened to Jesus? Brought before the Sanhedrin and then before the Romans and all falsely accused? Isn't that what happened to Paul? brought before the Jews and ultimately before the Romans and all falsely accused. That's just a normal part of living in a fallen and sinful world. It's especially true in the year 30 to 70 AD, but just ex expect it. But there's a little piece on the end that is so encouraging here. Notice, he says, all this would be happening for a reason. You're being arrested so you can be brought before governors and kings for my sake, so you can be a witness before them. When tragedy hits you, you're falsely accused. God is still 100% in control. God is doing it for a reason. He's bringing you to places you wouldn't normally go to meet people you wouldn't normally meet so you can share the gospel with them. That is why it's happening.
He's strategically moving you around. You want to see that take place? Remember Paul is arrested. Paul is ultimately brought before King Agrippa, the king. And what does he do in that time? He shares his testimony. And then he invites Agrippa to become a Christian. And Agrippa responds, are you wanting me to be a Christian? And Paul says, I want you to be just like me, except for these chains. He's living out what Jesus told him. You're being arrested and brought before kings so you can be witnesses to people you wouldn't normally meet in places you wouldn't normally go. That's how it works. Now, he says this. By the way, expect the gospel to be proclaimed to all nations. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And all of a sudden, you're going like, well, hold on here. Wait, wait a minute. That has to do with the end of the world, doesn't it? But Jesus hasn't begun to answer any of those questions. He's still talking about in this context of when will the destruction of Jerusalem take place. But how could the gospel be proclaimed to all nations before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD? You know, people who are missiologists, by the way, love this verse. They love to say, uh, you know, Jesus cannot come back until the gospel has been proclaimed to all nations. And by the way, I completely agree with the importance of missions. I underline that. But I do want to tell you, I do not think using this verse for that purpose is a fair use of this text. What we need to understand is when we think of all nations, we live in a much larger world than they did at that time. They had no idea America, North America, South America, Antarctica. They had no idea that existed. They lived in what was called the Roman world which was sort of localized over there. And just so you know, the gospel had been brought to all of the Roman world by 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. So actually, Jesus is completely right. This was fulfilled. Then he says, expect the Holy Spirit will provide wisdom on what to say and when you are brought to court. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that when you're arrested, remember you're going to be persecuted just to get used to it, that when you're suddenly arrested and brought before kings, the Holy Spirit will help you say the right things and be a good witness for me. We actually find this being fulfilled in Acts chapter 4, verse 15. Remember the disciples were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, and they spoke about Jesus Christ, and the Sanhedrin said they were amazed that these were just unschooled, ordinary men, yet how could they speak about this with such clarity? The Holy Spirit helped them, because Jesus promised he would. Some of you have seen this verse misused, by the way, saying it says here that you don't need to almost, well, since the Holy Spirit's going to help you, some people think this means whenever you have to speak about Christ, there's no need to study, there's no need to pray, there's no need to research, no need to write, because the Holy Spirit will do it all. And that is a misunderstanding of this verse. In context, this is speaking about people who are suddenly arrested, brought to court, and they do not have time to prepare. The Holy Spirit will help them in that time. Then he says this, expect to be betrayed, even by their own family. 
continuing on this betrayal theme, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. I mean, it's one thing to be betrayed by the outside world, but he says even expect to be betrayed by the inside world. Your own family will betray you. Don't be shocked at that. It's normal. Remember Judas? Wasn't he part of Jesus' inner 12? At the Last Supper, wasn't Judas sitting at the place of honor? Wasn't he the one who was in the second of command position at that final meal? And what did he do? He betrayed Jesus. If Jesus was betrayed by those who are closest to him, expect that you will probably be betrayed and accused by those closest to you. And Jesus says, that's not unnormal. That's not abnormal. It's just part of what it's like living in a fallen world. Incidentally, we don't find this kind of betrayal recorded in the scriptures, but we do find it recorded in ancient history. Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, writes about what the Romans would do. They'd arrest Christians, torture Christians to get the names of more Christians and even their own family members out of them. And then they'd arrest those and torture them further. So this is exactly what happened. And he summarizes it this way. Expect to be hated for Christ, but enduring to the end means we'll be saved by Christ. And you will be hated by all for my sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. As Christians, we should expect to be hated by the world around us and even betrayed sometimes by a church family within us. Expect that. Remember what Jesus described when it meant to be a Christian earlier in the Gospel of Mark? Take up your cross and follow after me. That doesn't sell well in the modern world. Taking up your cross means willing to give up your life to follow Jesus. We don't like to hear that, do we? But that's literally what it means to be a Christian. Incidentally, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We don't earn our salvation by enduring to the end. We display our salvation by enduring to the end. So, when Christians go through hard times, this is always what happens. Genuine Christians draw near to Christ. Fake Christians always fall away from Christ. Persecution is the great revealer of genuine fake faith and fake faith. How do we respond? Up to this point, Paul has, or Jesus has given us fake signs, false signs that you shouldn't look at and say, well, the end of Jerusalem is going to take place right now. Then he's told us what life is going to be like for Christians. In the year 30 to 70 AD, it's going to be tough. By the way, it can also be tough right now. Now, Jesus continues on. He says, let's talk about what is the true sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Because remember, that's the question he's answering. What is the sign that Jerusalem will be destroyed? And here's what we find. The abomination of desolation is the true sign of Jerusalem's destruction. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Guys, the end of Jerusalem, that's the sign. Run as fast as you can and get out of town. And I know at this point you're going, okay, this is going to get interesting. 
abomination of desolation. What are we talking about? The first thing you need to know is, is this is actually an Old Testament term. Daniel uses it three times, and I'll explain to you what he uses it in reference to in a moment. But let me tell you what it literally means. Abomination means to make something become detestable, horrid. Desolation means to run away from something because you are so disgusted by it. It is so horrid. So when Daniel originally used it, he was talking about a time in the temple when worship would become so horrid that worship would be abandoned by God's people and they would run away from it. Daniel's original prophecy of that was fulfilled in the year 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Assyrian king, attacked Israel and actually took over the temple. Let me tell you a little bit what he did. He outlawed worship of God. He sacrificed pigs inside of the altar of Jerusalem. He erected the statue of Zeus inside of the temple. He even put an altar to himself with his own picture inside of the, the temple itself. He outlawed circumcision. And then he turned God's house into a house of prostitution. Is that an abomination? Do you see why God's people went into desolation and they ran away from worship? Very clear fulfillment. Incidentally, that took place in 167 B.C. In 164 B.C., the Maccabees led a revolt which ultimately overthrew um, Antiochus Epiphanes and they reestablished worship. And that is where the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. That is where that came from, the reestablishment of the temple. Jesus here is saying there is going to be a second fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. There is going to be another time when there is an abomination of the temple which will lead to a desolation of worship. And when you see that, that's when you want to run. Incidentally, this is where I tell you at this point, uh, some Bible scholars say this all has to do with the Great Tribulation at the end of history. I'm not agreeing with that right now because Jesus has not changed topics. He is still answering the question is what will be the sign of Jerusalem's destruction when there's an abomination of desolation of worship? Did that happen? Oh, most definitely. Right prior to 70 A.D., what happened was a group called the Zealots took over temple worship. You remember the Zealots? They're the terrorists of the day. They're Antifa, BLM, all rolled into one. They set up as high priest a guy named Fanny. Fanny was popularly known as the clown among the Jews because he was literally a joke, had no experience in what it meant to be a priest whatsoever. Fanny, by history, was a criminal. He had all kinds of criminal activity taking place in the temple. He actually had people murdered in the temple complex itself just prior to the year 70 A.D. That's an abomination of the temple, folks. And what was going on with the people of God at that point? Desolating it. They were leaving it. Now, in addition, it's very interesting because I told you you can read this account in both Matthew and Luke. And they have a little bit of extra color that it, they add into things. Look what Luke says at this very same point. Luke is writing to people who are not Jewish, who do not have the background of Daniel. And he's telling us some of the other things that Jesus said. He's writing to Gentiles. 
He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. Jesus also said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by an army, the end is near. This is the sign you are looking for. If you continue in Mark, look what he says. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Remember what we've learned about as we studied houses in the ancient world. People are oftentimes on the flat roof. There's an, always an out exterior staircase they go down, not an interior staircase. Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by an army, get down the stairs, don't even bother to go inside and pack, just run for your life. If you're in the field, then you know what you would do is you'd bring your jacket with you, and as it got warmer, you'd leave your jacket on the end of the row while you're working on the row. He says, you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem? You don't even bother to go back and get your jacket. You just run for your life when those armies come. And just hope it doesn't happen. Think about it in winter and think about it for pregnant or nursing mothers. It's going to be bad. And Jesus continues, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And the Lord, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. At this point, doesn't it begin to sound all of a sudden like we're sort of talking about the end of the world? That never again will there be, or this is the worst case of tribulation that has ever taken place. The problem is Jesus has not switched topics. He's still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then how can Jesus say in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation until now? Here is what I think is going on. Jesus loved to use what is called hyperbolic language to make a point. That's language of exaggeration. Remember this one? Take the plank out of your own eye so you can see the speck of dust in your brother's eye. That's language of exaggeration to make a point. I believe Jesus is using language of exaggeration here to make a point. That the destruction of Jerusalem will be so horrid, it'll be mind-blowing. Worse than you could ever conceive of or even imagine. That is what he is saying. And you say, well, was it? Let me tell you this. Jesus has just told people that when they see Jerusalem start to be surrounded by armies, you run as fast as you can and you get out of there. Because you know what the Romans did when they surrounded Jerusalem? One of the first things they did is they dug a pit like a moat and they put up walls to completely confine the city from the outside world first thing they did to keep everybody contained. Hope you got out right away. Jerusalem had, according to Josephus, 1.2 million people in it. In the siege that followed, the Romans killed 1.1 million people, either by starvation 
the sword or they crucified them one by one. That's a pretty heinous siege. Let me tell you a little bit more about this. Josephus, and he writes about this, talks about young mothers who were gaunt and emaciated on top of buildings holding their babies who were dying that they couldn't nurse because they had no food. Because when you cut off the city, all the food supply is gone. They wouldn't go down from the house because in the streets below, it was filled with the bodies of dead people that were rotten, swollen, and bursting because so many people had died of starvation. Josephus also talks about some mothers who even killed and ate their own children in desperation during the, the siege. Josephus talks about the fact that when the Romans finally breached the walls and entered the city, they killed so many people that the streets literally ran with blood up to the ankles as people walked through the streets because so many people died. Now, I told you they, they confined the city so no one could escape. What about those who did try to escape? Josephus talks about every single person who tried to escape was crucified by the Romans to the extent that they literally ran out of wood for the crosses. Even though they reused them, they could not get enough wood in the whole area of Jerusalem to erect enough crosses to kill the people. That sounds like it's a pretty bad siege, isn't it? Where 1.1 of 1.2 million people are killed by the Romans? Look how Josephus describes this in his Jewish wars. Indeed, in my opinion, the misfortune of all nations since the world began falls short of those of the Jews. Does that sound eerily similar to Jesus' words? Exactly. Now the question is, where was God in all this? I'll tell you, large and in charge, and yet showing grace and mercy. Really? Didn't it say that God cut short those days for the sake of the elect? This was God's act of judgment upon the temple and the people for rejecting his son. He allowed one-twelfth of the population to live. It's grace. He cut short those days. Let me, in the interest of time here, let me just quickly run to the end. But if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs, wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. He goes back to that thing. Watch out for those false teachers. And then he says this. Be on your guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Here are the applications I want you to take, four of them at the end. Number one, don't be deceived by false teachers. Jesus has said this twice. This will be one of the most effective attacks of Satan against Christ's church. False teachers. Number two, be careful about end-time speculation. A lot of people are going to tell you they've got the end times figured out and they know exactly when Jesus is going to return. And Jesus says all that is false signs by looking at earthquakes and wars and rumors of war. It's a natural part of living in a fallen world. The only sign that he gave was when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and the abomination of desolation taking place, then you run. Number three, God is in complete control even when the world feels out of control. And most importantly is this, Christians will face suffering, 
gospel, God will use it for the spread of the gospel. Remember that, guys. He said here in the middle, expect to face suffering. They rejected Jesus and persecuted Jesus. They will reject you and they will persecute you. But the good part is he is large and in charge, always in control, and he will use that to bring us places we wouldn't normally go, to bring us before people we wouldn't normally meet. Should we consider the good news of Christ and the gospel will go. Remember the end of Philippians? We know that Paul was falsely arrested, falsely accused, found himself in prison under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. He's like, well, I must be here for a reason. I'm meeting people I wouldn't normally meet, going places I wouldn't normally go. At least start telling these guards about Jesus. The guards were becoming Christians. They were returning to Caesar's household, and Caesar's own household was being evangelized. Folks, I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know how God has messed up your plans, but it is not without purpose. He's got a good reason for it. He's taking you to places you wouldn't normally go, meeting people you wouldn't normally meet, so you can share his word, and the gospel will grow, and the kingdom will spread. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chapter. The words of your son on the destruction of Jerusalem, and then next week as we look at the end of the world. I ask that you would help us to have humility as we study the text, to admit we don't understand everything about the text, but at the same time, I ask that you would mature us as we look at the text and we come to greater love and admiration for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for being in charge of all things and use it even our suffering to take us places we wouldn't normally go, to meet people we wouldn't normally meet so we can share the good news of the kingdom and your gospel will spread and the kingdom will grow. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.